What's cool this year in Halloween costumes? Madonna, Chuck Norris, Minnie Mouse. As you can see, everyone has their own opinion, but it seems that cartoon characters, superheroes, and rock stars are the most popular costumes for today's trick-or-treaters. What happened to the days of witches and vampires? Well, they've been replaced by modern-day characters like Rambo and He-Man. But one kind of Halloween costume will never go out of style. The gross monster. Yeah. Why are monsters cool? They got blood running down their face and everything. October 1986. This is the month I was born. It's also the month of Halloween. And what goes with Halloween but horror movies? Here are a couple of the horror movies that came out in 1986. We have David Cronenberg's The Fly. We have Manhunter, the very first Hannibal Lecter movie before Silence of the Lambs. Would later get remade into Red Dragon. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, Critters, The Hitcher, Maximum Overdrive. In all honesty, it's not a very good year for horror movies. These are the most popular ones. These are the ones that I recognized. There were a handful of smaller movies like Chopping Mall, but you know, not everyone has seen that movie. So I was like, oh man, 86, not a great year for horror movies. If I was going to have to do another version of this show, maybe I would focus on just the horror movies of 86 to find the hidden gems there, but I'm not going to do that. What are some other spooky things that uh, came out in 86? It by Stephen King was published, like this massive thousand-page novel. Tim Curry's The Worst Witch. This is like a made-for-TV Disney movie about witches. It's not Tim Curry's movie. He didn't make it. But it is the movie that the funny YouTube video where he's singing a song in like a, a fancy suit came from. Anything can happen on Halloween. Your dog could turn into a cat. There may be a toad in your bass guitar, or your sister could turn into a bat. This is the year of the first McDonald's Halloween buckets, which, funnily enough, in 2022, they have returned. I was going to talk about some like true crime stories, but even then, it's nothing major. I looked up like serial killers or like big spooky crime stories and like I'd never heard of any of them. And it it would feel like, I don't know, kind of dark and weird to really talk about the like unknown or less popular popular is not the best word, but less known stories. We're not talking Dahmer or anybody like that. We're talking about, like, a random Korean serial killer or Virginia Parkway killer. doesn't really fit the mood of the show. But my original theory of, you know, 1986 not being a good year is holding up, at least in the non-music side of things. We're going to talk about some fun music, though. My quest to find the best music of 1986 has led us down a fun little rabbit hole for this week. So welcome to Dance of Days, 1986. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Justin, your host. Uh, Last episode turned out to be a pretty well-received episode, so I decided I was going to post this in the main feed again. Uh, If it eventually starts being where people aren't that interested in the main feed, maybe I'll throw it behind a Patreon wall. But friend of the show, Dave Brown, as well as Dylan, my co-host, they both said that I should just put it in the main feed, because obviously the work that I put into it is shown, so... Here we are. It's October, so I'm already doing a gimmick on top of a gimmick. I'm going to tie it into our usual Halloween habit of doing goth, death rock, horror punk, psychobilly, or just overall spooky records for October. I chose a couple different records for those fitting those genre reasons. And then there's one or two records on here that I picked for 
not as obvious reasons, but we'll get to those later. If you missed the first show, it's in the main feed. You can go back and listen to it. That's kind of where I lay out the idea behind this series. I'm going to listen to as much music as I possibly can from the year 1986 and then pick albums to talk about from that year. This year had some interesting stuff as far as those previous mentioned genres, the little spookier sounding albums. And if you like what you hear today, uh, please, please give me some feedback. I love to hear feedback on this and what you think of it. You can follow us on all the social medias at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pod. We have an email address, which is punklottopod at gmail.com, and a voicemail line, which is 202-688-PUNK. Let me know. Send me a message. Just let me know what you think of this, if this was fun, if you like this, and uh, give me some recommendations. I'm definitely willing to take recommendations on albums from 86 that I could consider for future episodes. You can also head over to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash punklottopod. For $1, you get access to all of our bonus audio. For $10, you get to choose an album for us to talk about on the show. Before we get into the first record that I selected from 86 to talk about that fits our spooky theme, there were a couple albums from 86 that I thought about talking about, but uh, didn't make it for whatever, whatever reason. First would be Tinderbox by Susie and the Banshees. Excellent goth rock record. I did not include it on the show specifically because we did an episode last year that was all about the Susie and the Banshees discography. It was called Best Worst Over or Under. We had Anne Lepore from the Machine Shop on. Very fun project. Loved it. So much fun. But I've listened to every single Susie record and I've talked about them a lot. So if you want to hear my opinions on that, go check that one out. I almost selected the Church's album Heyday. But I wasn't quite sure if that was actually considered goth rock. To me it was, but everything I read online kept saying it's jangle pop. So it'd be like more Smith style. Ultimately, I think that's why I decided not to go with it. Very good record. Very fun. I may wind up doing an episode where I talk more in depth about the album, though. Love and Rockets released Express. Love and Rockets are the band that was created after Bauhaus by Peter Murphy, and they have some good songs, but overall the record was very inconsistent, and I just I did, couldn't think of enough good things to say about it, or it didn't grab me enough for to devote a huge chunk of the episode on this one. There's also Killing Jokes, Brighter Than a Thousand Suns. Another one I was like, this is solid, this is pretty good, but I don't know, it didn't quite hook me enough. And there were two Nick Cave albums that year, I could have done an episode on them, but I just was not super into them. Uh, Your Funeral, My Trial, and Kicking Against the Pricks. One of them's a cover album. I don't know. I, it just didn't quite excite me to talk about those albums. So, And then lastly, Clan of Zymox, Medusa. It's a pretty good post-punk gothy album. I don't know. I wasn't super hooked. A lot of strings in it, but not quite what I was looking for for this Let's not waste any time, though. Let's get into the first record from 1986 that fits my loose parameters for the episode. Up first, it is October File by D. Kreutzen. to the spooky on this one. I did a quick glance at the albums and EPs that were tagged horror punk, psychobilly, goth rock, and death rock, and the fine users that rate your music have tagged this album with both gothic rock and death rock. I ultimately went with it 
just because it has October in the title. So it kind of fits the sound. It's got October in the name. Let's go for it. D. Kreutzen were from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They formed in 1981. D. Kreutzen is a grammatically incorrect German translation of the words, the crosses. D. Kreutzen were part of the often overlooked Midwest hardcore scene of the early 80s putting them in a similar vein with Husker Du, Negative Approach, Naked Ray Gun, and the Chicago bands of the era. I've always felt that the Midwest was home to more angular or harsh versions of punk and hardcore. So much of the D.C., L.A., Boston, and New York scenes are these formulaic punk and hardcore scales, like the standard power chord up the neck that so many of those bands played. And for the Midwest to stand out, they really played around with the structure of hardcore. And I imagine there was a healthy dose of like metal being an influence on their sound. Up to this point, D. Kreutzen had released their demo in 1982, the Cows and Beer 7-inch that same year, and their self-titled full-length album in 1984. October File was released May 1986 on Touch and Go Records. This is their second full-length album. And the personnel in this album is Keith Bramner on bass, Brian Egnis on guitar, or Egnis, excuse me, apologies if I mispronounced it, Dan Kubinski on vocals, and Eric Tunison on drums. It was recorded at Multitrack Studios with Corey Rusk serving as producer alongside the band, and it was engineered by Rick Conzano. Corey Rusk was the owner of Touch and Go Records, as well as a former member of the band The Necros. Multitrack Studios also served as the recording place of fellow Midwest bands, The Necros, Negative Approach, and Killdozer. Those unfamiliar with Touch and Go, they were a Chicago-based record label that would become famous for releasing albums by Steve Albini, especially Big Black and Shellac. Also, albums by The Jesus Lizard and Slint. The only other album of note that Touch and Go released in 1986 was the album Rembrandt Pussy Horse by The Butthole Surfers which is an album I could not get three tracks into before turning off. I did not like that album at all. Over time, D. Kreutzen would evolve their sound away from hardcore and begin experimenting in post-hardcore, which is what's on this album. The band said they were listening to other bands like Echo and the Bunnymen, as well as Susie and the Banshees during this time, and it kind of explains the new direction they go to in this record. Though, I could see how someone would get spooky elements on this album and why you would want to consider it death rock or gothic rock it is a rough blend of hardcore goth and metal there are moments of blistering speed followed with gloomy and ill at ease tunes the opening track man in the trees features some sharp guitar lines that evoke the psycho shrieking violins like the there are some big riffs on the slightly slower tunes that feature a guitar tone that would not be out of place on the return of the living dead soundtrack especially on songs like Counting Cracks and It's Been So Long. One thing that popped out to me multiple times while listening to this album is whatever symbol that the drummer Eric Tennyson is using on this record, it has a ring to it that sounds exactly like a telephone ringing. In fact, there were a couple times listening to the record that I had to pause to see if someone's phone was ringing in either another room or at work or wherever I was. It was very weird. I was just like, what? What is... Is that a phone? Nope, just a weird ring out on a cymbal. Lead singer Dan Kabinsky has a voice more like the hair and glam bands of the 80s. He has a really high, kind of shouty voice. Like, you could hear that on some, some other records in the metal section of your record store. The fourth track, Imagine a Light, showcases the band's earlier hardcore roots, and it's a pretty fast-paced tune. They also hint at an alternative rock sound that would later come in their career on the song Cool Breeze. One of my favorite tracks on the album is The Awesome Among the Ruins, a very gothy tune with some awesome melodic moments. So fans of the time were not thrilled with this album. And Tunison himself said that they left a show once and a fan had written on their van, You suck now. And Kabinsky also said fans still write him letters telling him how much they did not like the album. Maximum Rock and Roll said at the time, This is a fucking boring record. This is a fucking bore... Nah, pretty unmemorable stuff. The speed is down, but so is the spark, leaving these still ragged vocals and REM meet Led Zepp sound. Wish I could be excited, but I'm not. Classic Maximum Rock and Roll. 
hating on everything. It's nice to know they were like this in the 80s, too. Spin Magazine's John Leland said, With its primitivist experimentalism, this amazing punk artifact may be the best Wire record since Chairs Missing. It's as if Wire went Metallica instead of Art Swill. You've heard Kerbinski screech late at night when you feel bad, but don't know why. D. Kreutzen doesn't try to explain or exercise the pain. October File is more radical than that. It accepts it. What balls? So fairly positive review there from Spin Magazine. Decibel Magazine said in 2020, October File demonstrates that D. Kreutzen's only true peers at the time were SST bands like Husker Du, The Minutemen, and The Meat Puppets. Well, not when it came to overall prolificness, but definitely in terms of musical restlessness and a desire to subvert norms. It's nice to see Decibel give it a reevaluation all those years later. The users that rate your music have given it a 3.49, ranking it number 292 for the year 1986 overall. D. Kreutzen would go on to release their third album, Century Days, in 1988, their fourth album, Cement, in 1991. In 1992, the band would break up when guitar player Brian Edgeness decided to leave the band. The rest of the group would form a new band called Chainfall. They would reunite in 2012 and play shows off and on. Thurston Moore would later say in the liner notes of Lean Into It, a tribute to D. Kreutzen. Man, there was a point when D. Kreutzen were the best band in the USA. D. Kreutzen were always a band from this era that I was very fascinated with. For some reason, I'd never really dove too deep in their discography. I want to say I've heard some of their other records, but nothing's really stuck out to me other than like what I remembered their sound being like. It was just this more angular, distorted, and like metal-sounding punk record. I was very excited to listen to this album. I think it's one of the more interesting and more unique-sounding records of 86, especially when it comes to like hardcore in particular. Moving along to our next record... It is The Ghost of Cain by New Model Army. Look out of your windows, watch the skies. Read all the instructions with bright blue eyes. With WISPs, yeah, proud American sons. We know how to clean our teeth. I know to strip down a gun Cause we're the The States of America Okay, this one's a little bit of a stretch, <laughs> I'll admit it, but much like my reasoning for selecting October File, the title is kind of why I picked this one. Though there are moments on this record that I think make it slightly spooky. Listen, I was either going to talk about it here, or it would have been on the maybe the next episode of Dancer Days. I was going to get to this album regardless, because it surprised me. Taking their name from the new model army of the first English Civil War... The band formed in 1980 in Bradford, West Yorkshire, England, once introduced as the ugliest band in rock and roll on national television, and were denied entry into the United States because the immigration office said the band's work was of no artistic merit. I don't know what these guys did to piss everyone off, but it seems a little harsh from coming from those groups. New Model Army's first album, Vengeance, went to number one on the independent album charts, and knocked the Smiths out of that slot in 1984. Good for you. Take that, Morrissey. Released September 1st, 1986 on EMI Records. This is the band's third full-length album, following 1985's No Rest for the Wicked. The personnel on this album is Justin Sullivan on guitar and vocals, Robert Heaton on drums, and Jason Moose Harris on bass. This is produced by Glenn Johns. Johns had previously produced albums by the Steve Miller Band, The Who, The Eagles, and The Clash. Sullivan said that working with Johns was the biggest musical learning curve of his life. In Billboard magazine, he said, He was the old rock attitude. He gets you all in the same room to play together at the same time. Then he cuts out anything with long intros 
and sticks to three and a half to four minute pop songs, so you end up sounding like a rock band, not $20 million of computers. This is the first album by New Model Army to feature new bassist, 17-year-old Jason Moose Harris, who replaced founding bassist Stuart Morrow. Sullivan used to go by the name Slade the Leveler because he was worried that he would lose his unemployment money if the government ever discovered that he was making money from playing music. Robert Heaton was a former drummer for the psych rock band Hawkwind and joined the band prior to the group's first full-length album, replacing the second drummer, Rob Waddington. New Model Army are a blue-collar, anti-Tory band who often wrote songs against Margaret Thatcher and the royal family. The album kicks off with The Hunt, a perfectly spooky, down-tuned track with tons of minor key elements. It has shouted gang vocals on the midway point through the song. These vocals were the part that hooked me immediately. Note about this song, it would be covered by Sepultura on their 1993 album Chaos AD, which sounds super badass. It's a really great cover. Going into this album, I had no idea whatsoever what New Model Army sounded like. They were one of those bands who seemed to release an album almost every year that I've, we've ever covered on this show. I couldn't even tell you what style of punk they were supposed to play, which I think might actually be on purpose because the band was known for changing their style quite a bit. Listening to this album, I was surprised at how good the songs were and how disappointed I was that no one has ever told me about this band. Why, why were none of you telling me to check out New Model Army? Is it because you don't know? Well, I'm telling you to check them out now. I haven't really checked out any of their other albums all the way through yet, but I have heard some other songs, and they are pretty interesting, so we'll see. Maybe I'll check out some of stuff later. This does seem to be their most popular album in their discography, though. Going back to the gang vocals, uh, the choruses on Lights Go Out also feature some shouted group vocals that absolutely rule. 51st State and all of this reminded me of something The Alarm would have released during this period of time. It's got lots of acoustic guitars. There's like a folky element to their songs. Poison Street is one of my favorite songs on this album and has a great police-style sing-along chorus and a harmonica solo on the bridge performed by Mark Feltham of the band Nine Below Zero. This song was also one of two singles off the album, 51st State being the other. The bass work on this album is truly brilliant, and especially on tracks like Heroes. The record ends with the unfortunately titled Master Race, but it, and it has a bit of a Dire Straits sound to it. This album made the band a presence in the UK alternative rock scene. 51st State was an underground hit for the band, and the only song of theirs where the lyrics were not written by the band. Those lyrics were written by The Shakes member Ashley Cartwright, and to this day, it may be the band's most popular song. The album was well-received by critics and audiences, and the band was finally allowed to enter the U.S. at the end of 1986 when the album came out. David Sinclair of The Times, a U.K. publication, named it the best album of the year. He said it was the best thing to happen to English rock music since the first Clash album. Robert Christgau would give the album an A-. RPM Weekly said in 1986, Pure and simple, one of the best rock and roll records to come from the UK this year. Whatever Glenn Johns gives to groups he works with, and these include The Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Clash, and The Eagles, he has also given to NMA. Hopefully the band will be allowed to tour to support this release, at least in Canada anyway. RPM was a Canadian magazine. David Bowie liked this album so much that he asked the band to open for him in Europe on a tour. The users of Rate Your Music have given this album a 3.72, which ranks it at number 57 on the 1986 charts. I hear bits of The Clash on this record as well as some U2. There is an extended version of this album that features B-sides and live tracks on it, which you can listen to on Spotify. There's only one member of this band who has been a permanent part of New Model Army, and that is Justin Sullivan. Harris would leave after the following album, Thunder and Consolation, in 1989. Heaton would stay with New Model Army until 1998, with Strange Brotherhood being his final album with the band. And sadly, Robert Heaton would pass away from pancreatic cancer in 2004 at the age of 43. So, R.I.P. Heaton. My main takeaway from this record is that I need to hear more by the band. The other songs I've heard I enjoyed. But there's definitely a lot to this sound that this band was doing. Elements of folk, metal, goth would show up in later records. I think they have a pretty wide selection of albums to choose from that I've not heard. So I, I'm very interested to check those out. Moving on to my third selection of the episode. God's Own Medicine by The Mission. 
decided to go with the mission as my goth rock representative. There's just something about God's Own Medicine that just grabbed me a little more than, say, the Clan of Zymox or Killing Joke Records. The Mission, or The Mission UK, as they are sometimes known in the U.S., are from Leeds, England. They formed in 1985, and this is the band's debut album. It was released November 10th, 1986, on Mercury Records, and the personnel is Craig Adams on bass, Mick Brown on drums, Simon Hinkler on guitar and keys, and Wayne Husey on vocals and guitar. Or Hussey. Probably Husey. Recorded at Ridge Farm and Utopia Studios. It was produced by the band and Tim Palmer. A connection that Husey had from his time in Dead or Alive. Palmer at this point had produced albums by Kaja Gugu and Robert Plant. And would go on to be a producer for tons of major artists later. The mission spins out of the Sisters of Mercy. And in a way that's kind of convoluted. So, Wayne Husey and Craig Adams were in the band Sisters of Mercy. And they attempted to record a side project with their Sisters of Mercy bandmate Andrew Eldritch called The Sisterhood. That recording session was not fruitful. There were some creative differences. And it was so bad that Husey and Adams both left Sisters of Mercy and abandoned the session. So then Adams and Husey brought in Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry drummer Mick Brown to join the band. They began playing as the Sisterhood, but Andrew Eldridge released a single under the name The Sisterhood at the same time that they were playing shows. So they decided to go by The Mission. The band recorded God's Own Medicine in six weeks. Stay With Me was released as the lead single, and Wasteland was chosen as the second single and actually charted at number 11 making it the most successful single on the album. Severina was the album's third single. Wasteland opens the record up, which has this really fun kind of driving bass line, which reminded me of that Golden Earring song, Twilight Zone. And naturally, with the guitarist and bassist of Sisters of Mercy, there are going to be some similarities. The Mission are in the same genre, but they feel like a little bit more straightforward, especially in the rock realm, whereas I think Sisters of Mercy has a more cinematic approach. Vocally, Wayne Husey's voice is incredible. Very powerful and smooth. He kind of reminds me of Bono and Ian Asprey, which they had actually toured with the cult around the time that uh, the Sisterhood single came out. There's some really fun synth work on this album. There's the chimey bridges burning. That song also has a lot of silly howling all over it. Garden of Delight is a beautiful symphonic tune consisting entirely of strings and Husey's voice. I think they're just keys, though. Stay With Me is an outstanding song with a huge hook. The album was originally released as 10 tracks, but the CD and cassette versions added the songs Blood Brother and Island in the Stream. Trouser Press at the time said, Dull and insipid guitar, keyboard, string, bombast. The LA Times in 1987 said, Mostly the Mission UK's songs mixed dark, introspective lyrics and sweet pop hooks, much of which resemble the melodic side of Led Zeppelin. Okay, so this is the second album that we've talked about on here that got compared to Led Zeppelin. I saw multiple articles bring up Led Zeppelin. I do not hear that whatsoever on this album. The only thing I can figure out is that maybe it's just so bombastic, and maybe that's the thing that people are tying to Zeppelin. Throw in the fact that the producer had worked with Robert Plant. Maybe maybe there's something there. I don't know. I don't get that sound at all. This is just straight ahead goth rock. I, I can't think of like Z- Zeppelin when I hear this. Rate Your Music gives this album a 3.56, ranking at number 192 for albums from 1986 overall. Over the years, band members would come and go, as well as take multiple hiatuses. They would release 10 more albums, with their most recent one being in 2016. The current lineup consists of Husey, Adams, and Hinkler in the band, so... While Simon Hinkler and Craig Adams have not been in the band the entire time, it is nice to see them back in the group again. Especially especially Craig Adams. Because, you know, he was part of Sisters of Mercy with, uh, with Wayne. So, I read lots of articles around this time period where they were talking about the band's, like, excessive, drunken attitudes and how they dress in this, like, dramatic and over-the-top fashion, which included lots of, like, silk sachets and, like, really long, you know, 
I don't know, moo-moos. I don't know what you would call them. Just like full body kind of like drapey clothing. I was surprised to see some of that. But I think that's always been part of goth rock. Um, it's a really fun record. It does give me those Sisters of Mercy vibes. But uh, uh, I do think I like Sisters of Mercy better, ultimately. But I also have not checked out much of the Mission's other music outside of this record. So I'm very curious to see what those other albums sound like. How much they change their sound over time. Maybe they're more... I think the output's bigger, the Sisters of Mercy. So maybe they're a little bit more... Um, Reliable. I don't know. Let's get to the penultimate album on today's episode. So I would be remiss if I did not include this album. It is Samhain 3, November Coming Fire by the band Samhain. Clear the air now. It's pronounced Samhain, not Samhain. It's named after a Gaelic festival that Halloween takes a lot of its roots from. I know everyone calls it Samhain. That's not how it's pronounced. Even Danzig says it right, though he says that he doesn't get mad when people say the wrong name, but it's Samhain. It's pronounced Samhain. From Lodi, New Jersey, or Lodi? I guess I didn't bother to look up how to say that one. Lodi, New Jersey, formed in 1983. The band was originally meant to be a side project for Danzig and Erie Vaughn. When the Misfits broke up, Samhain became his main band. Samhain also represents the middle ground between the Misfits' catchy punk and hardcore sound with Danzig's solo, doomy blues metal. This makes Samhain a heavier sound than the Misfits, but still on the more punk side of things. Death rock is such an ill-defined genre. In some ways, it's kind of a free description, though. When you say horror punk, you pretty much go, Misfits, or Misfits soundalikes. When you say death rock, you could mean, like, tons of different things. You could think Samhain, you could think 45 Grave, or TSOL, Rudimentary Peni, or half a dozen Japanese bands from this time period. Sonically, it's a little horror punk, it's a little goth rock, it's all spooky. Sound released their debut album, Initium, on Danzig's label, Plan 9, in 1984. They would then follow that up with an EP in 1985 called Unholy Passion, which brings us to this record, released February 1986 on Plan 9 and Caroline Records. The personnel in this album is Glenn Danzig on vocals and keys, Erie Vaughn on bass, Pete Damien Marshall on guitar, and London May on drums. The album was produced by Danzig and recorded at Real Platinum, a studio in Lodi, engineered by Bob Aleka. So here's a strange little detail. London May was so new to the band that he did not have enough time to learn all of the songs. So Danzig actually played drums on five of the 11 tracks on this album. Diabolos 88, Birthright, Let the Day Begin, November's Fire, and Human Pony Girl. That's right, Human Pony Girl. Erie Vaughn replaced Brian Baker of Minor Threat on bass in 83, and Damien replaced Lyle Presler, also of Minor Threat at that time. London May came in from the band Dag Nasty, who replaced the previous drummer, Steve Zing, who left the band in 1985. I do think we forget to give Danzig credit for being a talented multi-instrumentalist. He writes a majority of the songs. He writes all of the songs. I read an interview that Danzig did with Vice magazine, where the interviewer asked him, so do you just bring the songs to the band and then teach them to the rest of the group? And the Danzig's response was, that's a question you would ask David Bowie. You think I'm David Bowie? Yes, I write all the songs. I bring them to the band. He got really indignant about that question. I guess it's, I don't know, Danzig being Danzig, I guess. 
but he really is talented. He knows how to play piano. He knows how to play guitar. He knows how to play drums. He played drums on this record. He writes all the songs. If he doesn't write it on the guitar, he writes it on the piano, or he just like does the vocal melodies, which by the way, there are a lot of really great vocal melodies on Misfits, Samhain, and Danzig records. So the dude is a good musician. I just think that over time, he's ran out of a lot of his good ideas. So this is the second full length, and it is titled Samhain 3, November Coming Fire. This begins Danzig's habit of numbering albums, which he would do on the Danzig records going forward. This album features a re-recorded version of the Misfits song Halloween 2. The remake of this song is a lot heavier and more down-tuned, very metallic. I personally like the original Halloween the most. Not Halloween 2 from the Misfits, the first Halloween song the most. It was the most fun version to me. Diabolos 88 was originally a song called Wendigo that was never completed. It is a fun, super reverby drum sound on it. It's almost like there's like two recordings of the drums. There's some chant style vocals, some fake bells and chimes. It's an instrumental track mostly though. In My Grip and Mother of Mercy have this really cool harmonic style guitar part that sounds like clanging metal. Mother of Mercy also has a really awesome chorus that shows off the more melodic side of Danzig's voice that you would really hear on his solo records. The chime on Birthright has this very 80s Christmas music quality to it. It's very funny. It's some kind of Yamaha keyboard. Unbridled's Bridge was a copy of the cartoon theme song from Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. Literally never heard of those cartoons before in my life. Sound were famous for playing Covered in Blood, usually Pig's Blood, which you can see on the Initium album cover. This record would be cited by Metallica's James Hetfield as one of his all-time favorite records. And Metallica was pretty instrumental for carrying the flame of Danzig's earlier material, causing the next generation of music fans to check them out. Maximum Rock and Roll said, This disc really grows on you. Just keep on keeping on, Maximum Rock and Roll. Punk News did a review of the Samhain box set and mentioned in the song Human Pony Girl, with its almost gothic structure, the sinister song shows that the differences between genres maybe aren't different and good music just might be good music. Trouser Press said, The transitional November Coming Fire has some of Samhain's most intriguingly arranged songs, most notably the atmospheric ballad To Walk the Night the heavier, more metallic music exemplified by the crunching Mother of Mercy, and lyrical development, the horror angle is out, pagan religion is in, helped pave Samhain's evolution into Danzig. Rate Your Music gives the album a 3.59 and marks it as number 158 for 1986 overall. The band would wound up being signed to Rick Rubin's label Def Jam, even though he only wanted Danzig at the time and he was going to build a band around them. Danzig refused to sign unless Erie Vaughn was allowed to join the band. So Ruben and Danzig decided that there needed to be a new direction for the band's sound. So they kicked out guitarist Damien and brought in John Christ. At some point in 1987, Danzig decided he wanted to change the name from Samhain to just Danzig. So he didn't have to worry about band lineups anymore. I don't know why this mattered to him, because both the Misfits and Samhain had a billion band members. Whatever. Samhain never really broke up, but they ceased to be... The same band, once London May, was replaced by Chuck Biscuits. So they signed a Def Jam. They kick out Damien. They keep Yvonne. They bring in John Christ. And they bring in Chuck Biscuits. And now they're just Danzig. So there's, there's like a slight delineation in each band. Name included. Though it is funny that the Samhain logo font and like the skull is the same one that Danzig would use later. So while Samhain only lasted for three years, they were rather productive with their time. They released two albums and an EP. Though interestingly, in 1990, the band would release one last album called Final Descent. And this consisted of songs between 86... And this consisted of songs recorded between 1986 and 1990, including a song performed by the Danzig band lineup. They would occasionally partially reunite with various different members over time, but no complete reunions. Damien would not be able to join the first reunion due to being on tour with Iggy Pop at the time. And then Erie Vaughn was not invited on tour because he apparently said he wouldn't do it without Damien. Though Danzig says he didn't want Erie Vaughn in because of the things he said about him over the years. To be honest, Danzig could just be performing with anybody and call it Samhain and it wouldn't really matter. I'm sure Tommy Victor and the typo negative guy can play these songs, uh, which they actually did do. 
London May would play in Son of Sam, The Davy Havoc from AFI, Samhain Worship Band, along with Steve Zing, previous Samhain drummer, and Samhain reunion fill-in, Todd Youth. London May would also play drums on the second Tiger Army album. And unfortunately, this record is not on Spotify. And if you want to listen to it, you can go to YouTube and do like the playlist thing there. The quality is not great. But if you go to the Internet Archive, they've got the whole album up there for stream, and it's a good quality. I imagine it's some sort of CD rip, probably from the box set, but good place to listen to it. I mean, really, if I was going to talk about a death rec- death rock record and not mention Samhain in Halloween of 1986, yeah, I mean, I had to. They're kind of the most important band with that sound with maybe 45 Grave being the next most important. I don't know. Death Rock's a very interesting genre. A lot of different bands use that term. and But no, like, super standouts, except for, like, what, Christian Death, but I don't really want to talk about them. They, they have, like, Nazi imagery and all their stuff. Not a fan. And we have arrived at our final album for this week's episode, and it is A Date with Elvis by The Cramps. Interior and Poison Ivy met in Sacramento, California in 1972. They bonded over a love of music and 50s and 60s kitsch. They would move to Akron, Ohio, and then New York City, where they would form the first iteration of The Cramps. Formed in 1976, they came out of the blooming CBGB scene that birthed so many bands. They would apply the term psychobilly to their music, but not really thinking of a new genre, but rather using more as they've put it, carny terms to describe their music on flyers and posters. The word comes from a Johnny Cash song. They denied they were trying to start a new genre. They sometimes called their music voodoo rockabilly. Rockabilly was their main focus, though. They would release their first EP, Gravest Hits, and their first full-length album, Songs the Lord Taught Us, in 1979. They would then relocate to Los Angeles and release their second album, Psychedelic Jungle, in 1981 as well as a live album called Smell of Female in 1983. A Date with Elvis is the band's third full-length album, released on Big Beat Records in the UK. The personnel is Lux Interior on vocals, Poison Ivy Rorschach on guitar and bass, and Nick Knox on drums. They named this after an Elvis record of the same name, recorded in the fall of 1985 at Oceanway Studios in Hollywood, California, with engineers Steve McMillan and Mark Edel. This was their first new album in five years and saw the first permanent addition of a bass player to the band. Before this, they didn't really play with a bass player on their records. Poison Ivy plays on this album, but they would eventually hire someone to perform bass live. And when you listen to this album, the bass really adds a more full sound to the cramps that you didn't really realize was missing previously. Those earlier records sound a little more thin, but it also lends to the lower fi quality. The Cramps were a band that I've talked about on this show before about how I liked their early stuff but didn't go too far in their discography because I wasn't really a fan of like the sleazy direction their lyrics went. It took me a long time before I realized that Poison Ivy was the one who was directing the band's image and the sleaze is kind of so over the top and goofy that it's too silly to be taken seriously. This is the record where they kind of switched their lyrics from a B-movie horror sci-fi focus to the more like sexual double entendres. How Far Can Too Far Go kicks the album off with this buzzy, warbly feedback thing before rolling into this super catchy rockabilly tune and has a brilliant old school solo. P. 
People Ain't No Good starts a little kid's choir of vocals and has the traditional breathy, herky-jerky Lux vocals. What's Inside a Girl is my favorite track on the album with its country-western swing and like surfing bird-style vocals. Kiss My Ass is the only song in the Cramps discography to feature Poison Ivy on vocals. Chicken is a traditional folk song rearranged by the band. And Aloha from Hell is a really fun surf-inspired tune. The album ends with a cover of the Charlie Feathers song, It's Just That Song, which has a very Elvis quality. <laughs> the band dedicated the album to Ricky Nelson, and it wound up selling 250,000 copies in England, but in the U.S. they couldn't find a label to put it out until 1990. When it finally came out, it was released on Enigma Records and added the tracks Blue Moon Baby, Georgia Lee Brown, Give Me a Woman, and Get Off the Road. It was their most successful record commercially hitting the billboard hot 100 can your pussy do the dog was a hit on the uk singles chart which i find very bizarre which in the uk they spent multiple nights headlining the same venues hammerstein ballroom being the most notable sue cummings in spin magazine said the cramps first album in five years is familiar enough to please offering the group's trademark surf punk rockabilly grunge smothered in fender reverb Guitar Girl, Poison Ivy, Rorschach, sure can work that whammy band, that whammy bar. But the new cramps have less edge. They've betrayed their rip, they've betrayed their retro purism by recording in stereo and adding bass lines to some of the tracks. And none of the songs here approaches the psychotic fury of, say, their version of Surfin' Bird back in 1979. David Cleary wrote for All Music. There are numerous sly references in the verses to high and low cultural icons, including Shake It One Time For Me, a line from Jerry Lee Lewis's whole lot of shaking going on, I'll be dancing through the flames like a devil in disguise, a nod to the Elvis Presley hit, and now there's more things in Tennessee than is dreamed of your philosophy, a paraphrase of the line from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Most of the songs here are in various rockabilly-derived styles, featuring either garage rock fuzz or Dwayne Eddy twanging guitar from Poison Ivy. And this rollicking and energetic platter in particular is the equal of any of their canon, and an essential listen. Robert Palmer in the New York Times said, The result is a wonderfully organic ensemble sound that's even more sparse than before. Every instrument fits right into the groove and nobody shows off. Still, the most dramatic growth is in the songwriting of the interior Rorschach team. Radio Music gives this album a 3.61 and places it number 142 for overall albums in 1986. The band would have a rotating lineup over the years, but Ivy and Lux were the main con constants. They would follow this album up with their next record, Stay Sick, in 1990, then Look Mom No Head in 1991, Flame Job in 1994, Big Beats from Badsville in 1997, and Fiends on Dope Island in 2003, which the band would then last until the year 2009 and called it quits when Lux Interior passed away. I have come all the way around on the cramps since my early days of only preferring their first couple records, which I'm very thankful for. I'm very glad that I decided to give some of these other albums a chance, and I got, I got a lot out of listening to this record. It might be their best-sounding record overall, though I don't know. I am very partial to the early ones, so I don't know. But production-wise, if we're thinking about, like, quality of the recording, this is probably the best one. This is also my Psychobilly selection for the Halloween episode, so spared us talking about, I don't know. I honestly don't even know who was putting out Psychobilly records that year. It could be, it could be anything. In fact, let me look that up. Psychobilly 1986... And we get, ah, we get Demented Argo, someone called The Last Drive, The Dwarves, I don't know that they're a psychobilly band, I know they're like a punk band, The Meteors, ah, The Guanabats, Coffin Nails, so there actually was a lot to choose from, uh, I'm sure they're not very good, but if I'm still doing this show next year, I'm gonna need to pick a psychobilly record to talk about, so we might wind up talking about one of these. Who knows? Maybe I'll just do like all metal, all metal records with gruesome album art. That'll be the spookiness of next year. We'll see. We'll see if the series runs that long. But uh, let me know if you want the series to last this long. I uh, let me know what you thought of this one. I had a really fun time researching all these records and listening to them. I thought it might be f weird to do a gimmick on a gimmick this early in the run, but here we are. We do this every time. 
on the show. But please, any feedback is appreciated. I want to hear about hear from you, what you liked, what you didn't like, recommendations, albums I should check out. I'm trying to figure out what I should do for November. I, I want to maybe go and like continue doing the way I've been doing and just picking stuff that I like based on what I've listened to. But I also thought maybe trying to hit up some other genres, like, I don't know, some like country or like folk records or, I don't know, pop music. I don't know. I, I couldn't think of what theme would fit for November. What we got? Thanksgiving? Ah, like, that's why I was like country and folk. That's like the only thing I could think of that you tied a down home country living. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll have to see what I what I dig out. Otherwise, it might just be more of just like, I like this record, this record, this record. So... Let me know what you think, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from everyone, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much.